Welcome to Zero Broke Girls. I'm Jules. And I'm Joe. We started Zero Broke Girls as a way to empower women to take control of their money. We think the first step is to simply start talking about it. So that's what we're going to do. We're so grateful you've joined us for this week's episode. Let's get started. Hey guys, welcome back. Today we're going to be talking to Emily, who is a total badass when it comes to personal finance and investing. We are so excited you guys are going to be able to listen to this conversation, as not only does she have an incredible story, but she's also working towards some pretty lofty goals. Emily runs the Instagram page Sometimes Sensible, where she shares all kinds of personal finance, budgeting, and other money-related content. As a note, today you're going to hear us talking about something called FIRE. For those of you who may not be aware, FIRE stands for Financial Independence Retire Early, which is a movement dedicated to essentially extreme savings and investments early in life that allows you to retire far earlier than traditional budgeting or retirement planning that most of our parents' generation were exposed to. We absolutely loved chatting with Emily. Let's get started. Hey, Emily. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're so excited to be talking to you. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Thanks for having me, guys. First off, can you tell us what you remember about some of your early experiences with money? So I think the earliest thing for money with me that I've really uh, kind of been a little introspective and thought about before is I definitely grew up in a place of scarcity. And I say that not in the sense that, you know, oh, it was necessarily like a super awful thing, but growing up my family, it was definitely, we need more. And I was well aware being raised by a single mom that like you can't go to gymnastics camp because we can't afford it. So the we can't afford it became the whole vision that I had with money. And so that was probably the easiest pickup that I had. So as I got to, you know, grew up, kind of moved through adulthood, I went through this phase where it was you know, oh, I can suddenly afford it. My God, that's so exciting. And so I definitely had like a little pop of, I think, uh, overspending thing in college. Like when I was bartending, I was like, oh my God, I suddenly have money. This is incredible. Yes. Um, so that was probably the, the general tone. I will say things I didn't realize. Um, I got asked this question the other day and it was funny because this, the story of scarcity was always my go-to until I was thinking one day. And the actual first thing I probably remember that is not directly money related, but kind of was, I really wanted to go to marine biology camp back before we knew SeaWorld was horrible. I was like 10. They had this camp where you could learn to be like a marine mammal trainer. Sounds like a Disney movie. It was amazing. And <laughs> I hate saying it now because SeaWorld is horrible now. But right. uh, I had the same, you know, my mom's same response was I wish we could, but we really can't afford it right now. So I don't know how or when this discussion happened, but I got it in my head that if I could raise like at least half the money, my mom would give me the other half. And so if you guys don't know, I grew up on like a 30 acre horse farm in Tennessee um, when I was growing up. And so grew up riding horses. And so I used to teach lessons, even as like a 12, 13 year old, I would teach younger kids um, how to ride. And so I still to this day cannot believe these children's parents left them with me and paid me for this, but I put on a mini weekend summer horse camp for these kids and charged the moms like a summer camp fee. 
And so I, I did it. I, I went to SeaWorld camp. I raised, I don't actually remember how much of the camp portion I raised, but at least half to the amount where my mom was like, okay, I will pay the rest of this so you can go. So I feel like the general tone for me growing up with money in my earliest memories was definitely scarcity and we can't afford it. But when I was thinking about it, it really turned into almost a good thing. So I would attribute all of my entrepreneurial genes to my mom and growing up with that scarcity mindset because it was, we can't afford it, but if you can make it happen, then you can do it. Well, I mean, now that I know you grew up on a horse farm, you're even more like a Disney movie. <laughs> grew up on a horse farm, went to marine biology camp, paid for it all yourself. I feel like Zac Efron was waiting for you there. So, <laughs> Oh my God. I Does anyone remember the movie like Flipper? Yes. I... I did have all of those movies and was obsessed with them uh, growing up. And I used to have rows of marine biology textbooks. I was like 13 at, at most and can remember stacks of books that I would just read about dolphins and whales. It was, I don't know. <laughs> I can't explain it. Oh, that's awesome. Well, thanks so much. I feel like the experience is such an interesting thing, right? Because it kind of drives so much of like how we feel about money, how we act around money, all of that. So uh, yeah, really interesting to hear about your scarcity kind of mindset growing up and then it leading to when you did have money, maybe like spending a little bit more than uh, than you would have maybe liked to. Or... It's weird. I think about it, you know, now as an adult and I'm like, oh my God, that's really weird. But I would spend a lot of time at my friends who were like middle to upper classes houses. Like I used to have this weird thing where I would joke and this is such a horrible thing to joke to my mom about but I would joke and I would be like no mom I must have been switched at birth my my real family is like very rich and lives in a mansion in Malibu and I was like I am meant for for more money mom (laughs) and so I became very entrepreneurial uh, because of that and would spend a lot of times with like my friends who had wealthier parents and some weird like trying to be in an alternate universe. I don't know. Bless my mom, who was very patient and, you know, probably didn't make her feel great, but she, she hung in there. (laughs) Oh my goodness. So when did you first start getting interested in finance and investing? So I was always very money minded in the sense that I had to be, I think I paid for college myself um, and was like financially independent at 16. So I think there's a layer of financial education that came to me out of necessity. It was like, figure it out or can't pay rent. Um, I think that I became more consciously interested in it in grad school. And again, I think my entrepreneurial bug kind of carried me to it because I had this horrible experience with a healthcare bill of all things. I have my master's in public health. Um, So I went to the doctor and ended up getting this bill for this like astronomical amount. It was just a horrible experience all around. And so my decision was to make a business plan to start a company that was going to fix the healthcare costs in the United States, which if you don't know, is like probably the hairiest and most notoriously awful, awful small aspirations. Yeah, it's fine. It was just a casual business plan. Like, (laughs) yeah, just just a normal Wednesday. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. What a beast is I brought it to my professor and she, I, cannot even imagine what she was thinking, but she kindly did not laugh at me. Um, she actually connected me to the startup that I work for today um, and recommended, oh, wow. yeah, and recommended that I take some more classes in the business school. 
um, because I was very close to dropping out of my master's of public health because I didn't enjoy it. And uh, my counselor actually told me, I think you should drop out and get an MBA instead. But this professor was amazing and helped me carve out a little bit of an entrepreneurship and finance course within my public health education. So I love that. We talk about student debt a lot, and we've talked to a few people about student debt, but most of the people we've, most of the women we've talked to have been Canadian. And Mm -hmm. I don't know how much you know about the healthcare system in Canada, but it's a lot more, we don't pay for most things. Mm -hmm. Like we still pay for some prescriptions and dental and eyes, but if you need a doctor or you need the hospital, it's largely covered. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say the statistic and then this podcast is going to go live and someone's going to be like, that's wrong. But at one point when I was in grad school, I don't know if it still holds true today, but healthcare um, costs were the number one cause of bankruptcy in the United States. So it's very prevalent. I think that a combination of that healthcare experience and then my student loans, which I knew were just like racking up in private grad school, were the reason that I was like, okay, I want to start a business and I want to do all these things. So therefore I need to get rid of this debt. And that was probably the gateway to personal finance for me. It was never, it never truly was like, I really love finance. Like, let me just like read all the stuff. No, frankly, it was boring as hell. It's so dry. Yeah. It's so dry. Which is why so many people avoid it. I a hundred percent agree. And that was like probably one of the biggest reasons I started sometimes sensible was because it was just, it was boring and not written for someone like me who had, you know, 150, I think a graduate is close to $200,000 in debt, actually. So the personal finance information I was reading was like tough to get through an article and also not really catered to a 25 year old woman with business dreams and $200,000 of debt. (laughs) So many of these inaccessible topics to women are just sometimes in the way they're taught and the examples that are used. And then we can't always relate to them and then we can shy away from it a little bit. So I think it's really cool that you've now taken it and tried to make it accessible for people like you. So when you graduated with, what did you say, almost $200,000? Yeah, 190 something or another. How did you like rationalize that in your head? What were you, it's a, it's a big number. I mean, probably not yeah. outrageous for the States. It's still pretty big, even for it's pretty big, <laughs> even even for even for the U.S. It's it's pretty big. Um, so the funny thing is, the vast majority of it is my graduate degree. I actually did really well in working and getting scholarships and taking out very very little loans in undergrad. So I'd say I think about thirty thousand of it is from undergrad. The rest was graduate school, and then there was about ten k with my car loan, which I bundle in there. Um, I don't, I don't know. Rationalizing. I think I, one part of me was like, it's monopoly money. Oh my God. Um, and then the other part of me, I think is kind of the part that is from my mom. And she was just like, well, you're here now. So you might as well get it done. There was no way that I was going to change it. So I think the rationalization was like, honestly, I just tried to not even think too much about it as like an, oh shit moment and just be like, let's make a plan. And I'm, I'm very type A. I would love to be more easy breezy and cool, but I am like, nope, if I make a plan, we can do anything. Like that's fine. So it really was just like one night in a spreadsheet. I got a little wine drunk and went to town on my, (laughs) on my student loan plan. That's amazing though, 
so many people have these student loans, and especially with the number so big, I feel like it would be so easy to kind of just only be able to focus on that and be really dragged down and overwhelmed. I think it's really cool that you've turned it into like, okay, I have a plan. I'm going to pay it off. I'm also going to be doing these other things while I'm paying it off. It does not define my financial story 100%. It's a piece of it. I have to be aware of it. I have to work to pay it off, but there's so much more that I can be doing. So I feel like so many times when people have debt, it's like the only thing they can think about. And it's very stressful. Mm -hmm. I almost feel like this is my, (laughs) I've thought about this before uh, because I have a friend who was like, aren't you more stressed? And I think there are two parts to it. One, when you grow up and you're like, you know, financially independent at 16. And I remember the days when I was like, rent or food, which one today? And that just sets the stress threshold so high that when I would look at my student loans and I would feel myself getting like, oh my God, it was kind of just like, well, you have food, so you're still better than you were and you have a nice apartment. Your dog is pretty cute. Like all in all, this is 10 steps forward than, you know, four or five years ago. And then the other part of it is the, I've always been kind of just like, put your blinders on and keep going forward. Like that's the way to get where you want to go. I I jokingly will always shout out my high school bullies for this because in high school, they were so horrible that the only way that I got through high school was to be like, okay, I've got three more years of this shit. And if we can get through it, college is going to be amazing. And I'm going to move out of this stupid tiny town. And it's going to be amazing. And I don't know how amazing it was, but I will say that the training of like, just put your blinders on and push through was like a huge part of how I deal with my finances now. And I don't know. Thank you, bullies, I suppose. Thank you, bullies. (laughs) Comes full circle. (laughs) Well, it really speaks to the power of just having a healthy mindset. Yeah. And focusing on what you can control, which is ultimately kind of the essence of what you're, what you're saying, push forward, look ahead, Mm -hmm. don't look back. What are your bullies saying now? They sound like assholes. Now some of them follow my Instagram and uh, oh. it, it always kind of makes my day a little bit. I've never, no one's ever messaged me or interacted, but uh, I'll, I always see it um, kind of sometimes when it happens and I'm like, oh, hey there. Hey, and now <laughs> I, you're watching. I see you. <laughs> I notice I you. See you watching. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's amazing that you're able to know while you're going through such a tough thing that it would get better and it sounds like it is much better and you're now on a path towards financial freedom and you're getting there through investing so can you tell us how you got started with investing yeah um it's funny because I can remember in undergrad my mom told me to make a Roth IRA and I don't think I had any clue what it was but at one point I did open up an account I never put any money in it but I actually had to close that account out um, like six years later. And I was like, this just isn't what I want. Um, And opened up a different one with a better company. But so it was mentioned to me and kind of just brushed off when I was an undergrad. I definitely got very, very interested in it um, when I was in graduate school. And I think the same thing, like the backbone was always like out of necessity. I'm very, very goal oriented. So it was like, I want to be work optional at 35. What do I need to do to make this happen? And investing entered the scene. And I never really, I will say, I didn't really have that. What if I lose all my money thing? And Mm -hmm. I wish I had a good explanation for that. I think I'm very much a 
person who makes very quick decisions. And once I make the decision, we're all in. I'm like that too. Yeah. So in grad school, I was like, all right, I did the research. The numbers look great. I'm not going to day trade. I'm going to invest. And now we're all aboard. But it was definitely a, I want to be work optional at 35. Like, let me look and see what steps I need to take to do that. And I, to this day, like all the research I've done, I really believe that that is the only way you're going to get there is to invest or inherit a shit ton of money. But for me, that wasn't going to (laughs) happen. For most people, that may not be a reality. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, let's not bank on that. So work optional at 35, what does that mean? Love talking about this. So I want to hear about it because I want to do it as well. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. me too. (laughs) Please explain to me how to do it. Okay. So work optional for me, one, you have to like figure out your why and what it actually means. And I've noticed it's super different for everyone. And the why is what keeps you moving forward. It keeps you motivated going along the path because finances, again, are kind of boring for most people. So if you're just trying to save, you know, X amount every month and you have no idea why you're not going to get very far. The why for me and of work optional is I want to be able to run my own business on my own schedule and spend time with my family and do the things that I want. And basically it's, it's not that I want to stop working, which is why I don't use the word retire early. um, Like the fire community does. I will always work to be honest. I'm very, I don't know. I'm kind of a workaholic. It's a bad thing. We're working on it, but I want to be able to only work on projects that bring value to me, things that I'm truly interested in or that I feel are going to make a difference in the world. So I have like a few, you know, passion projects I'd love to work on more. Marine conservation comes full circle from camp there. Oh, wow. Human rights, like that. I so being work optional allows me to do that because it's the financial stability that I can say yes or no. And finances are not a factor. I like to also sum it up as my fuck you money. It kind of just lets me be able to do what I need to do without considering, you know, the financial ramifications. No, I mean, the, the work optional is, man, it's such a good goal these days. How early did you come up with this goal to be work optional by 35 or when did it start? I'm 25 now. So I don't know, 24. (laughs) So recently, (laughs) maybe not recently until, until 25. Like, I even feel like that's young I think of myself at 24 and I was like, just so focused, I feel like on getting a job, like not even thinking about retirement and yeah, yeah. wise, very well, wise. Yeah, very wise. No, so not you. I, no, I know. I'm saying she's <laughs> wise. <laughs> I'm definitely oh, not wise. You were like, oh yeah, I am wise. I no, like, I'm agreeing oh, that God. Emily is wise. Well, I have a groundbreaking secret to tell on this podcast and this podcast. Oh, like, not really, oh. but I don't frame it like this often, but truthfully, I don't like to work. Yeah. I don't like to be told what to do. I'm a little bit like cranky when I have to get told what to do. <laughs> um, and so I think if the, you know, I'm aware that 24, 25 is, is pretty young um, in the grand scheme of things, but I just didn't like work. Like I started, I think in part, I probably went to school. A lot of times I joke, I went to grad school because I wasn't ready to pony up and work yet. And I was like, I just want to do stuff that I want to do. And I knew corporate America was definitely not my jam, which is why I work at a startup because it's about as close to like doing what you only want to do as you can Mm -hmm. get while getting paid by someone else. But I wish I could say there was a wise, amazing reason that I had an epiphany in the shower and I said, this is the path, but it was very much like 
I really want to be done working at 3 p.m. Yeah. You're also, I mean, I think financially independent, you said at 16. So I think for you, money, like all things money started a lot pretty early. Yeah. I do think in part the decision to really hammer down on the work optional stuff is because I've been working for just so long that by the time I got a decent salary after grad school, I was like, I'm tired. I finally have a little money and I have to keep working. Like, can I just like have this and now do a little less? Like it definitely, that was a motivator. Yeah. I think it's really crazy to look at our, like the generation before us or our parents' generation and like people who it was common to work at the same place for 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. The thought of that nowadays is just mind boggling to me. Oh, every time I get angry at my coworkers and my boss, I pull up LinkedIn and start job searching. I love right? my job too, but like, yeah, <laughs> I'll be like, nope, I'm done. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's just wild to me that an entire generation, it was just common to stay at the same place for that long. There, I think there well, were also more benefits of doing that, right? Too, like there used to be more pensions, or used to be like, yeah, like there was true. more things keeping you there. That's a really good point. I think the other weird thing that's just, I would say with our generation is starting to get a little bit of more attention, but the idea that you have to work until 65, like there was never a discussion of what your retirement number is. Like no one really factored that in. It was an, it was always an age. Yeah. And that, that to me was bigger than like, I could probably maybe work at the same place for 20 years before I would say like, I have to work until I'm 65. Yeah, it's so true. And I think that's probably why it's like, I never even really thought like, oh, yeah, like, why wouldn't I plan my life so that I don't have to work until 65? Mm -hmm. I mean, that just seems like a smart thing to do. Yeah, is that's definitely something I'm really passionate about trying to at least just make more known to to women, especially because I feel like women are one, like, you know, we have, a, I don't know what it is in, in Canada, but here in the States, we have a, a pretty large wealth gap still. Um, yep. And so that, and then I just think of, you know, there were so many situations that I probably stayed in in life because I couldn't financially change them. Um, and so I think of those, you know, women who are in a bad relationship, like if you had financial stability, you would leave. Like you don't 100%. need to stay with a partner because you're in a rent you know, apartment with them. And when you really actually want to leave and it's all things like this. How do you decide what your number is? So the, the number part, um, the, the basic formula, if you're wanting to figure out your fire number is you have to first determine how much of a salary that you want in retirement. So there are like guidelines, um, in the fire community. Like if you want to be lean fire, I think they say it's like sub 40,000, uh, regular fire is like, you know, 40 to 60 or 70, I think roughly something like that. And then there's, there's different things. I always say I, it's called fat fire, which just means I'm a bougie bitch. And, uh, I love it. To, so are that we would be the category we be in. <laughs> yep. Yep. I want at least a six figure salary, even in retirement. Um, so that means I'm fat fire. So but whatever your salary is, you can figure it. You just, you're guesstimating um, just to get an idea of your number. Um, so you would do like your salary. If there's any one-time expenses, you want to put that in there too. So one thing that I think about is my mom. I'm financially um, planning to support my mom more and more as time goes on. So I calculate 
my salary plus like her annual salary. And that's how I get my number. And I will say, I'm always really um, open about the number, but it's hard because I feel like I'll say one thing and then a few weeks later it'll change. So my number evolves with me. Um, at first I was like, yeah, 1.5 million. That's my fire number. That's what we're going for. which was, I think, uh, 60, 70,000. I can't remember. I'm trying to do the math in my head. It's bad. Um, but it was 1.5 million. That was like the salary that I decided. And then I got really interested in real estate. So now my fire number went down in what I want in stocks because I'm now wanting to have, uh, my partner and I's goal is $20,000 a month in passive real estate money plus our stocks. So it'll fluctuate. And, you know, sometimes I'm like, it's going to be $2 million. It really, you know, it depends. somewhere there. I'm, I'm pretty far from it. I think it does <laughs> right now, need to evolve, so. right? Like so many factors can change in life. And mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I'll have kids. They'll change the number. You know, my partner and I have had a few um, conversations about like what our number will be together and how that might change. How do you, like, is your partner as into kind of the work optional early concept as you are? Is it something that you're working towards together? A hundred percent. He's as into it as me. Um, He's definitely as financially minded as me. I think we approach it in different ways. Um, But yeah, we, we talk about it a lot together. We are both in it together. Um, Maybe too much. So actually was what I was going to say. We actually had a conversation recently that, we probably were starting to get a little bit mentally unhealthy with how lit, like, oh, let's see how little we can spend and how much we can invest. Um, and that, that got to, in quarantine, it was okay because no one, you're not leaving the house. Not like, doing what are you going to do? Like, really, it just came down to how much can we cook in the house and not get takeout, which I feel like, you know, on the verge of that's fine, like, whatever. But now that we're socializing again, it's definitely become something that we're having to, readjust our budgets and our mental health around on like, you know, how much do we want to spend together? Like, how are we going to view money with the balance between wanting to be work optional so young, but also I refuse to quote unquote waste my twenties by saving and investing, which is something I hear a lot. (laughs) Do you think it's helped your relationship to be so on the same page about money? Do you think you could ever be with someone who didn't, who didn't have those priorities? It's funny. I think that I, it's hard to say because I, I, you know, I have someone who has the same financial yeah. players. I think so. I, I don't know how I would act. I think that it would probably be really tough for me to be with someone who didn't have the same, like at least ballpark financial ambition. Like mm-hmm. you know, I, I casually look at four million dollar homes in Santa Barbara, and I'm like, babe. So what are we thinking? Six years, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, who knows? Um, but, Those apps are just the worst. They just oh make you God. want to be more of a workaholic because <laughs> I have a Zillow problem. But I will say the one thing that is almost a comical problem that it did it did have it made us better communicators. Um, but when he got really into personal finance as well, I was pretty well along with my sometimes sensible journey. And I won't out him on this podcast, but he actually started a finance Instagram too. And I remember we were at our friend's wedding and I was talking to one of our friends about like, you know, let me help you like get started. Like these are the things I'm constantly the annoying person trying to push finance down everyone's throat. Like, why don't you have a Roth IRA? What are you doing? And my partner swoops in and he was like, yeah, I can blah, 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 blah. And I was like, excuse you? Like, 
this is my realm. What are you doing here? And Too so close for it, comfort. Yeah, it was like a little bit like we definitely had to communicate through that. But I think there are pros and cons to when you're with someone who has so similar of interests and ambitions as you is all I'll say. But overall, I think it's a good thing. For sure. It's great that you guys are able to communicate about that. And it's so important. Mm -hmm. Don't they list finances as the number one source of divorce? So if you're not able to talk about it, I think that would be really challenging. We've been wanting to talk to someone. We haven't found anyone yet, but maybe somebody listening will want to talk to us about it who doesn't talk to their partner about money. Because it's something Mm -hmm. we know is really common. We Mm -hmm. know is a cause of a lot of potential relationship troubles. Um, It's not my personality to not talk about things. So we're mine. (laughs) We, uh, my partner and I think it had to have been like no more than two months of dating and we were on a walk and like set a monetary limit on when we would both be okay with each other asking for prenups. Like we were just from the start, like (laughs) very in the financial mindset. Kind of impacts every other element of your life. So if you're talking about sharing your life with someone, Yeah, it's, you know, I have learned that it is hard sometimes to figure out, you know, like you hear like issues like that, where I personally can't imagine a realm where that would be the same for me either. But I also know that there are so many experiences and things that, you know, walks of life that people will live that will impact like how they they view that. I mean, even me who loves to talk about money, I do remember being very nervous when I first told my partner exactly how much debt I was in. Like that was not exactly a smooth feeling to, to show the spreadsheet and be like, do you still love me? (laughs) So I, you know, I could probably imagine, Mm -hmm. especially because he has no debt. (laughs) Yeah. That is tough. Right. Cause you're starting to like, as you start putting your life more and more together, it almost like, although it's your debt, you almost feel like you're also putting it on your partner a little Mm -hmm. bit. And, and I think for that reason, I decided a long time ago that, um, I, and I, I, we've joked, but I don't want to get married until I have my debt paid off. So it was something that I wanted to do by myself for myself. And not to say he doesn't, um, he's very supportive. Like, you know, I was very close, like one more payment on my car or something. And he paid, you know, the utility bills. Normally we split them or something like that for a month. But it is a common question people will ask me is like, are you only paying your student loans from your salary? And that is definitely something I felt strongly about. Very cool. Oh, that's amazing. So Emily, like we said earlier, you run the Instagram account, Sometimes Sensible, where you're a money mentor helping people build wealth. Can you tell us what the main concern you hear is from the people you coach? Yeah. Um, I think the number one thing is probably just not knowing the steps, like the order of operations for, for your financial goals. Um, so one exercise that I always do with them is on the first coaching call, we always have a longer call, the first one, and I ask them to bring a list of their goals. And I tell them, I'm like, the things that keep you up at night, the things like your, your shower inspiration, like whatever it may be, all those random goals that maybe you didn't even tell someone because you were like, oh, that's a little too lofty, like bring those. And then we work backwards from that. And so I think a lot of the time that kind of helps them get an understanding of how to prioritize things and what that looks like. But, but generally a lot of my clients are in the, I don't quite know where to start and whether it's, I don't know how to start budgeting. I don't know how to start with investing or a few of them, or I just don't know how to start They're on the work, work optional path too. But you know, 
the investing, at least in the States, you have to get a little bit of the loophole stuff going on mm-hmm. when you want to pull it out. Um, but but generally, it's the how to start and prioritizing of your goals and financial. So what advice would you give to someone who wants to start investing? This one, I think, one, go find finance creators in the Instagram space. I think they do. Um, there's so many of us out there and so many of my favorite um, women are doing really amazing things, and especially the how to start. I think largely the biggest thing with how to start and you don't know how is you get analysis paralysis. Like you just don't start. And that's like the worst thing that you can do. And so I like to say, I think that it's technically there's an 80% rule, but the, the general gist is you don't have to know everything, like just know enough to get started and you're going to make mistakes along the way. And that's totally fine. I've definitely made investing mistakes along the way, but nothing detrimental. But the other option is if you're just like, I need tangible advice, Emily, where do I go start? Um, go look for a robo advisor ton of people I know will start investing through a robo-advisor. It makes it really simple. There's, if you're in the States, um, there's things, I think it's, uh, Wealthfront is a really great option. I don't know a Canadian equivalent, I apologize, but they are good options to kind of get you started. They'll manage it for you. And then I know a few people who, once they feel more comfortable and they have time to learn a bit more, they'll switch from a robo-advisor to self-managed. And that's like a good way to kind of stagger in the phases of, of learning. Yeah, that's really great advice about the robo-advisor. If you are Canadian looking for a robo-advisor, uh, you can check out Well Simple, and even some banks are offering that service now as well. So if you don't know where to start, definitely look into that. So just before we wrap up, Emily, something we ask all our guests is what is something you wish you knew sooner about money? I feel like the generic one is really just make a budget. Like, I always tell people the number one, like first thing you have to do, and this is actually kind of confrontational now. I feel like there are so many um, personal finance advisors who are like, I'm an advisor and I don't budget. And uh, I I feel like that's the level that I'd like to be one day. Like if you are good with your spending, you over time kind of get a little bit better of a gut sense on how much you can spend and what that looks like. But if you're really new, like I still stand by, get a budget and even more than getting a budget, have a spreadsheet budget or something you're writing down and entering in where your money's coming from and where your money's going. And it's not even if you have a spending problem, just, you know, that will help if you have a spending problem, but figuring out and having a good understanding of where your money's coming and where it's going and where you can improve and things like that are, are probably the number one. I will say the number two um, that I really like is, uh, Spend in the areas that make you happy without guilt. Spend there and look at the areas that you don't really get that much joy from and cut mercilessly from them. You don't have to cut everywhere, but cut from the areas that aren't that important. So for a lot of the time, I would rather have an experience than buy a thing. And so I try to guilt-free spend on my experiences and really cut down on the things and whatever it may be for you, but it tends to help a little bit with the mindset of spending. That is such great advice. Mm -hmm. Well, listen, thank you so much for coming on. Yes. Thank you, Emily. This was so fun. This was really fun. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Don't forget to subscribe and join us every Tuesday for a money date wherever you listen to your podcast. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Zero Broke Girls for details on upcoming episodes, how to find our guests and more. As always, if anything you hear sparks something you'd like to talk or learn about, let us know. We would absolutely love to hear from you. 
Thanks for joining us. We can't wait to chat next week.